You're listening to United States of the Left. All right. Robert, tell me about your weeks. How's work? Uh, Works great. Yeah. Um, I am expecting a promotion. Hey, congrats, Um, man. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Are Um, you are you in charge of the whole organization yet? Uh, I will be the director of programs. Thank God. Finally, man. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Um, Be able to direct culture and program activities. And basically what I'm being told is my mission is to preserve the secret sauce of the program. Which means you need to unionize all of the staff. I <laughs> <laughs> still because well, yes, they're going to override you anyways, man. <laughs> I, I brought that up in our strategic planning meeting. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was a pretty cold reception. I'm sure it was. <laughs> they were not expecting that. <laughs> well, you know, at least you're upfront about this shit. That's good. Um, yeah, man. Well, I mean, it's honestly... It's greatly deserved, and one of the things that they can't take away from you on that point is the fact that they gave it to you. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because, like, once you're at that level of authority, it shows that you've you've made it. You sure, know? sure. Yeah, so we just got to get full board approval. Um, so I don't want to, you know, count my chickens, but... Yeah, um, yeah. It's looking good. Good for you, man. Yeah, thanks. Congratulations. Thank well, you. I mean, take your take your time on that too. And if and if it doesn't come through as approval, it's not because you it's not you're not worthy of that. I mm-hmm. think it's just more politics. And Definitely. We've already seen that the board of your organization is not not known for their best choices in hiring. No. So if no. they don't go with you, it's their loss easily. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Jeez. How yeah. uh, how things been for you? Uh, honestly, things have been really good. Um, I feel like, I feel like I'm already bored of management. Mm. Um, so my entire goal for the next year or two is to essentially create a process so that I can train my replacement and, and either get promoted or leave Sure, (laughs) because I do not, I I would not want to be stuck in this, in this, uh, level of management for much longer but where would that promotion where would that go what would that look like probably a a director role i mean i'm already like i think in a quasi director position or higher right now because a lot of man i mean a lot of managers have staff most managers have staff almost all of them do um but their staff is usually not salary so the fact that I have a salaried staff person underneath me puts me already in a position where it's like, well, okay, what what level of actual like authority is that? Sure, sure. Um, so overall, though, I mean, I don't feel spectacular being the man uh, <laughs> at this point either. But uh, since my mission... And my role hasn't really changed. You know, it's essentially helping the organization rather than individuals do better. And like, it doesn't necessarily compromise my ideals. Um, And and the role that I'm I'm at, I'm okay with it for right now. Sure. That is an interesting um, trade-off though. The, as you move up, you're less, 
helping directly person to person and more, you know, mission organization directed. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Yeah, I, I agree on that. But I, I think like an interesting part of that too, though, is that like it gives me a better understanding of what it means to when people say get organized or when people say, you know, um, I mean, when you look at it from like an activist perspective or a community organizer perspective, I mean, a lot of the people who are running those organizations are one person armies, right? you know, but they're doing a lot of that same stuff. They're trying to come up with missions. They're trying to come up with this. And I think for a long time, I've been pretty hesitant to get into those roles, but now it's like, it's being kind of thrust on me by my professional career. And it's like, well, well it's about time I started to learn that shit too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think it, I think it requires both. I know for me, like my end game is to set my, you know, career up to where I'm pretty much exclusively doing, uh, direct, like person to person, individual helping. Nice. Um, but you know, just from what you were talking about from like an organizing standpoint, or maybe even a mutual aid standpoint, I think you need both. You need the, the micro and the macro. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning just, I mean, cause like half the time I'm just pulling shit out of my ass anyways, (laughs) but I'm learning that like, that's what everyone's doing. And so it's really more about just reaching that point where someone's willing to pay you a lot of money to just do it. And, you know, I think that that's a trust in judgment. It's a trust in your, um, you know, they just trust you as a person to have the the organization's best interests, which honestly, for someone like you to be like, ah, we should have a, we should unionize our staff. Like, yeah, that's, that's not something you normally hear from for people, but I think it's also a baller move. You know, it's like hiring someone who's a lot smarter and more capable than you to replace you. Sure. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring on someone who's capable of doing better than me. I'm not going to hide behind someone who makes me look good. Right. And you know, the same thing goes with ideas that are counter counterintuitive, but sure. I mean, we've already seen from your organization, just how little, uh, respect the secret sauce really gets in the first place. That's right. That's right. And to your point, um, it's kind of like what I've learned is most organizations and corporations are just three kids in a, in a trench coat. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Absolutely. That's all it is. You're absolutely right. And it's just kind of like, man, once you see that, then it's like, Oh, got it. You know, like any, anything that actually requires any higher level thinking, no one actually i'm just gonna say this out loud nobody trusts their own employees to do it so they always hire a contractor Mm. to make those decisions Mm. or to to do that higher level research because like everyone else already knows that we're just a bunch of kids in trench coats (laughs) so you just you just hope that you're paying for quality sure outside of the organization but do you know who do you know who don't think that they're three kids in a trench coat and maybe the public might also have the same impression? Uh, uh, <clears throat> probably the topic of our 
uh, night's episode, which would be fucking billionaires. Billionaires. Fucking billionaires. I'm sorry. Can I just say <laughs> fucking billionaires every yes. time we say it? All right. This is a not safe for work episode, guys. No. Well, fucking billionaires and their fucking money. <laughs> I would say billionaires are not safe for work. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, it is weird to be like mid-career professionals talking about this stuff sure. but it's like sure honestly i think it, it even has something huge to say about like we've been working for 20 years working our butts off you know uh either above or below the law um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you've worked the past 20 yeah, years i'm kind of late to the game yeah but you've been working either way and and let's let's be honest i doubt a lot of billionaires are all above board with how they make how they made their money sure morally ethically and legally sure sure and um you know just the proportion I think uh, there's been a statistic. I haven't checked the math or anything, but people have been talking. If you made $5,000 a day since Christopher Columbus yeah. got at, you know, still not have a billion dollars. And right. to me, that's, I, it feels true. Is it true? I don't know. Do I care? Not really. Right. Like, it's just <laughs> a billion dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a of, lot of Snickers bars. It is. <laughs> So for this episode, I think we wanted to like have a little more, uh, have it be like research based a little bit more. Well, I don't want to say thought out cause I feel like all of our episodes are thought out, but kind of a different approach from what we've done in the past, um, where we're not necessarily, you know, um, exploring the topic on its face, but we actually have some point of view, some perspectives that we want to share yeah i mean fucking billionaires i i'll be honest rob has done a ton of research on taxes and all sorts of stuff <laughs> i've mostly just got some like thoughts and uh feelings that i just wanted to express and hopefully get you all on board on but um you know overall <clears throat> our our goal with this episode is just to hit something that we thought everyone, aside from the point zero zero, hold on, I actually have this number uh, written down, point zero 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 one nine percent of the United States population that owns a billion dollars worth of wealth or more. Um, so everyone else can essentially say, yeah, fuck them billionaires. Sure, sure. And, you know, um, I hope... What, by the end of this episode, people can just think about the topic maybe a little differently. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, one of one of my big things is public policy and urban infrastructure. But um, what I've noticed when talking with people or pointing stuff out, just walking around, um, you know, Los Angeles or any city really is that most people kind of walk around without really realizing like, oh, that sidewalk or, oh, you know, there are no bike lanes in this part of town. I wonder why that is. Or, you know, the train tracks, <laughs> the everything looks worse on that side, <laughs> you know, but not a lot of people like it's just a part of the landscape. And I feel like right now, especially, you know, in 2022, 
billionaires are a part of the landscape. Yeah. And like really just kind of realizing that they probably shouldn't be there. They sure. probably shouldn't exist. Sure. Is not something that um, is a part of normal conversation, but it should be. Sure. Sure. So uh, where, where do you want to take this first, Jeff? Um, can I tell a story? Yes. Story time. We can... So I, I want to preface this that this is a metaphor, um, and I'm not trying to beat up on South Korea, even though I, I live there, and I already told a pretty epically sad story about uh, South Korea <laughs> right. already. But I, I want I want everyone to kind of realize that we're all in the same boat, and that you know capitalism produces uh, wealth that is unimaginable to the average person and that it, it causes um, some really weird ethical and moral and legal decision making that yeah. is really like actually just uh, awful. So this is a story about the uh, Sampung department store. Have you heard of the Sampung de- department store? I have not. All right. Well, <clears throat> so this was a building It was built back in the nineties, uh, 1990 to be exact. And, um, it was so egregiously and badly designed that the construction company that had initially been hired to um, to build this uh, department store, essentially a mall, it's like a five-story mall, it's a huge mega complex, um, r- pulled out. They said, no, we, we refuse to do this. So the owner, the guy who'd forked up all the money and bought the land and everything was like, fine, I'll do it myself. So he uh, neglected almost all safety standards and built an entire five-story complex, mega complex. And um, when it opened and through its five years of existence, it averaged 40,000 customers or people a day. It was a very successful uh, department store. Um, From 1993 to 1995, ever-widening cracks in the support columns were found throughout the building. Um, by April of 1995, the cracks were so bad that the actual ceiling on the top floor was starting to crack open mm-hmm. and customers were complaining <laughs> about it. So they, they just moved the merchandise to the basement and continued <laughs> to operate. Um, by June, uh, late June, say June 29th to be exact, uh, it was evident the building was going to collapse. Yeah. Like imminent. It was probably going to collapse within the day. So the owner was on premises at the time and the board had an emergency meeting and decided that they would keep the department store open for the rest of the day because they had a record number of customers. Sure. At the time of the board meeting. And so they didn't want to lose out of the revenue. However, they all evacuated. Except for mm. just randomly, the owner's daughter-in-law, who was an employee at the time, he, he left her behind. And then um, <laughs> later that day, the 45-ton air conditioning units collapsed the ceiling and mm. pancaked all five floors of the department store and killed 500 people and, and injured 1,000 more. Jeez Louise. Um, and again... This is an awful incident, but you can find incidents like this throughout the history of capitalism, 
<laughs> you know, all over the world. This is not a right. South Korean phenomenon. This is right. not a 1990s phenomenon. This has happened over and over again throughout the the history of, you know, sort of market-based capitalism. Sure. And I I see this as a metaphor for our current situation. I mean, we just had a movie called Don't Look Up that right. came out. Right. And it's, you know, you might as well be like, Hey, there are cracks in the ceiling. Don't look up. Right. You know, just right. keep on about your business. And the owners of this market, uh, this department store are the billionaires, the fucking billionaires of this planet who are, who are essentially cooking us alive. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, <clears throat> awful levels of inequality, awful levels of, um, environmental degradation and, my suspicion is they're aware of all of these things, but sure. every day that we're in operation, they get exponentially richer. Sure. And that's where we're at. Yeah. You know, um, I was actually reading up on, are you familiar with the Davos group? Uh, repeat that. Are you familiar with the Davos group? No. It's basically a annual meeting of the most, Oh, Davos, like Davos. in Europe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I Sorry. I, no, I, I, I just, I don't think I've ever actually heard anyone say it. So. Sure. I mean, I'm probably <laughs> I'm just, saying it wrong. I've just read about it a bunch. Okay. Well, yeah. the point is, um, they get together and they do their big ticket philanthropy. Oh, yeah. You know, pledging, and obviously the the hot ticket item is climate change. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, people like, um. Bezos pledging a billion dollars. Did he? I mean, let's, to a climate let's fund. be honest. A billion dollars? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's such a laughable. Yeah, I'm a multi-thousandaire, so that yeah. would be like donating a yeah. grand to a place. Yeah, I you think, know, like admirable, you know, but not not exactly. When you do the when you do the hurt. math, when you do the math, it's like equivalent of like donating like thirty four dollars if you have like an income of like sixty thousand dollars a year or something like that. It's, it's, do you all hear that? Do you have I I've given probably 34 bucks to yeah. quite a few people over the course of this year. But the point is like this this philanthropy I mean there's obviously financial benefits to them setting it up but it it doesn't do anything to fundamentally change the status quo because the status quo is going to support their profits it's going to support their their business it's 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 not it's not designed for any meaningful change or, or to actually, you know, effectively deal with the crisis of climate change. It's not likely to do that much. Well, yeah, I mean, it allows the systemic problems to continue because you can't, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that you can't effectively deal with climate change without first challenging um, our consumeristic society and and the fact that we've modeled we've structured our economy in a growth model in a finite system and yeah. so it's like if you want to if you want to effectively deal with climate change it's going to mean producing and consuming less and that concept is antithetical to what these billionaires and their enterprises stand for so therefore no they're not interested in the solution yeah i mean to, to go back to the davos piece i mean um 
I mean, well, uh, Rob, I, I know you've done a lot of uh, work on taxes sure. and, and sure. how much or how little uh, the, the ultra wealthy actually provide in taxes. But if if you're living in a in an actual democracy that is responsive to the, the people's will, taxes are probably the most effective way. And, and this is might get me crucified by any number of people, but taxes are one of the most effective ways to... Uh, equitably distribute or redistribute wealth sure uh from the the rich to the poor or from the rich to the public as a public good right and philanthropy really i mean uh, a person with a million dollars to give can be like well i like puppies this year and just give that money to the puppy fund and you know while admirable maybe the puppy fund isn't the best way to help society, but we don't get to tell the, the ultra wealthy right. who to give their charity to. Right. You know, it's just like walking down the street and you see 12 homeless people, which is not at all unusual in the United States, especially in LA. Sure. And you, you pick the one who you think is most worthy. Yeah. It's like the philanthropy is sidestepping, uh, democratic influence and, you know, the will, so to speak, of the people. Yeah, I mean, uh, directly the will of the people. I mean, I I think that this actually goes more to, you know, whether or not your government, uh, broadly speaking, is is representative and responsive to the will of the people. Which, mm-hmm. you know, I I have a lot to say about that, especially sure. around the United States. But sure. there are lots of countries all over the world that are far more responsive to the needs of their citizens than the United States, Definitely. and that you know. The assumption is, is that they're using their taxes to help fund healthcare and education and other things that are deemed public goods, right? And that people are are happy to to take advantage of. Um, right. I I think that there is some self sorting. Some people would rather try to come to the U.S. and gamble that they're going to make a a ton of money, but there are lots of people who would much prefer the safety and security of of a state, who or that represents their their needs right. and redistributes the wealth of the entire polity towards its citizens right so i mean i know on the topic of the state i know um you have some ideas about maybe some parallels between you know billionaires being state-like so i was just wondering if that was something you wanted to talk about right now yeah I mean, I feel like there are so many angles to this whole, um, I I would say, cultural phenomenon of allowing individuals to amass such huge amounts of wealth. I mean, there are other ways of, of of distributing resources in societies, and we have decided that um, it's fully acceptable that someone can own so much wealth that they're essentially uh, operating within the confines of a nation right? rather than as uh, the citizen of a republic. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I don't even feel like we hear this uh, language anymore when in the public discourse, but we are citizens of a republic. You and I are, and some people are you know, undocumented, which, you know, in some sense is just saying like, Hey, you're not a citizen yet. 
right of this republic but what about i don't know jeff bezos or, or someone with so much money that they essentially operate outside of the norms of society right um i mean how often do we hear about a billionaire or a billionaire's family ever being prosecuted for a crime through right. our legal system right uh, they essentially have diplomatic immunity Sure. You know, can you imagine someone worth a billion dollars, four billion, ten billion, a hundred billion dollars ever sitting down and being tried by a jury? They would probably settle. Right. Out of court. Oh, you want a hundred million dollars to never talk about this again? Here you go. Right. I gave ten times that to charity. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, there's even an example of a not billionaire, um, there recently in Los Angeles, uh, the son of a, of a, I, I don't know, a, a multimillionaire, uh, drove a Lamborghini at a hundred miles an hour down a local street and That's killed, right. a, I believe, uh, a woman on her way home from work. Yeah. And he wasn't even prosecuted until the community protested for weeks Right. Until he was finally, I think, given a slap on the wrist. Right. And that's just millions of dollars. We're not right. talking billions. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that that alone is uh, is very questionable. Sure. The idea that we have um, large groups of people who are essentially operating outside of the law. Right. You know, do I always agree with the laws? No, not at all. But am I subject to them? <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Should everyone? As a be? citizen, As you a are citizen, subject to them. I am subject to these laws. Maybe it would be nice that, <laughs> you know, the ultra wealthy were also subject to the same thing. I mean, I'm going to say the, the name Epstein. Right. Why do we not know what the hell was going on? Not just with Epstein. Yeah, he's dead. Okay. But what about that little black book? Who sure. was he involved with? How sure. is this? The fact that that conversation has not been happening to me says more about this diplomatic immunity be about uh, for the rich and the powerful more than it does that I'm assuming that a lot of the people named in that story were innocent until proven right. guilty. Right. Yeah. And then I know also there was, you'd brought up uh, in talking about this earlier, the Panama papers, which oh my gosh. got about, three days of airtime in the news cycle and then, uh, you know, disappeared from the collective. Well, who owns the newspapers? And I don't, I don't mean this in a, in a conspiratorial way. I mean, we've just recently watched a billionaire attempt to buy Twitter. Sure. Which is essentially a, uh, a news organ that's fairly democratized, but Jeff Bezos owns the Washington post. That's right. That's right. And, uh, Rupert Murdoch owns, pretty much the entire right wing media empire news, you know media sphere. apparatus yeah and so making news stories disappear is like bread and butter to sure. someone who owns sure what we talk about and hear about yeah and then there was also the 2008 financial crisis financial crisis and uh no not a lot of prosecuting went on then either nope not one bit and, you know, again, what I mean, this I hope that this doesn't sound like we're kind of cherry picking or anything, but really like in in total billionaires are the ones who are 
usually operating and benefiting the most from not just stability in the system, but chaos. Sure. I mean, during the pandemic, billionaires were essentially earning as much as everyone else was losing. Right. You know, three trillion up, three trillion down. Right. Um, and that is par for the course. Yeah. The, the, the K shape, uh, the K shaped recovery. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't other people who are benefiting from this, but billionaires, I mean, just the, the, the total number of billionaires is 614 in the United States. It's not a lot of people. Right. Um, you know, and, uh, I think just to continue this, Rob, and apologies, I know you've got a lot of stuff you want to share as well. <laughs> no, no, let's get into it. But I've I've been doing some digging because, you know, talking about state-like behavior, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm going to, I'm going to run some parallels by you. And I think yeah. that this actually goes along with what you have researched about taxes. But, um, I looked up, uh, and this is all fairly easy information to find, um, the estimated percentage of the nobility in France right around the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. It was about 0.5% of the population total nobility. Right. So when we talk nobility, who are we talking about? Well, the king and the queen, sure. Um, but there is a whole apparatus around them, the the dukes who ran the regions, you know, they were essentially like the princes. They were the, the counts and the barons and the knights and all these people. Well, okay, they made up less than 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. The nobility in Russia, 1% of the population. The top 1% of the U.S. owns 10 to $11 million worth of wealth. The top 1%? 0.1%, $43 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, notice I'm saying million here. Right. So the top 0.0000019% of the United States population are the billionaires. Right. The 614 people who own massive amounts of wealth. Sure. Um, and just to, again... <laughs> To keep this in perspective, currently, we are our equals in wealth inequality uh, across the world. The United States has company with the countries of Haiti, Ivory Coast, Bolivia, <laughs> as other countries of similar levels of wealth inequality. Um, and in terms of income inequality, we are beating out Uruguay and Uzbekistan just slightly nice so when I'm talking about these things we're really talking about medieval levels of inequality and medieval levels of wealth accumulation you know there were probably 600 people in France and in Russia who owned everything before those revolutions started and (laughs) when you talk about a billionaire versus like a schmuck like me, mm-hmm. they own everything. Sure. They literally own sure. everything. Like I I can't imagine yeah. the the actual difference in wealth between myself and a billionaire. Yeah, that's not that's not hyperbole. Not a, not hyperbole. Yeah. yeah. I mean these guys they're they're so un 
like unimaginative with their wealth. They keep buying bigger yachts. Like mm-hmm. it's a dick measuring contest, but mm-hmm. it literally is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, they get themselves hair. That's usually the first <laughs> thing they do. And then they get themselves a yacht. Well, I can't really blame them on that front. Well, <laughs> Robert, <laughs> you look great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no problem. So, you know, one of the things, and I want to bring this back to your research as well, is that uh, a fairly big portion of the benefits of being in the nobility back in the day as a history buff, so you didn't have to pay taxes. That's right. That's you right. You didn't have to pay taxes. You were expected to do other things, you know, fight right. for the regime, essentially. Right. But you didn't pay taxes. Yeah. And tell me about how much billionaires pay taxes. Well, you know, before before I get into the numbers, um, just reading about this, it kind of makes me question um, the the kind of like popular messaging right now of tax the rich. Um, it's a it's a sentiment I definitely share. Um, I have my DSA shirt that says it on the back, and I love wearing that shirt whenever I go to like bougie spots in Los Angeles. Nice. I like, I like that it, um, I think it, I think it brings up a good conversation to have. And so I think there's utility and value in that, but just in doing, you know, reading about the whole tax issue with billionaires, it just made me wonder if that's not the right message because ultimately what I've found out, and this isn't like, revelation you know to i'm sure a lot of people but it was to me was that um there's no point in taxing the rich when it's lawful to avoid paying those taxes right it's not really getting at the heart of the problem and when you say lawful to avoid not paying taxes you just mean hiring an accountant the best accountant you can afford it's and not just even figuring out ways yeah, not to but it's not even I don't legally even think, be obligated. I think uh when we think about it, it's kind of like um um like you just imagine, you know, this crazy accounting wizardry where mm. they're just doing magic numbers, like like kind of how the T V shows portray like um Enhance you know, <laughs> <laughs> like laundering money, right? Some sure. accounting uh magic that that makes the numbers work but it's 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 not that at all and essentially um what i learned is that um there was a pretty important um supreme court ruling um uh, back in the early part of the 20th century um and, and essentially um what it ruled was that you can't tax um, unrealized gains, right, from assets. And no. so we know that the, the vast, vast majority of billionaires' wealth is not, is not through income, but it's through the assets that they own, their stocks. And I, I just want to point out that the earth, like if we're talking history, like the early part of the 20th century was also a time of obscene wealth sure. inequality sure. and social unrest. Right. And so essentially it, it's really, it's a pretty simple um, system. It's been characterized by like 
buy, borrow, die. And so essentially what these billionaires do is they amass huge quantities of assets, usually in the form of stocks of the companies that they own. Real estate is also sure. a great way to sink wealth into something. And, sure. Uh, especially real estate in, say, Southern California that sure. you never intend to use. Sure. And um, and so um, essentially what they're able to do with all, all these, you know, huge amounts of, you know, stocks and assets and land is they can borrow against it. And so what what that does is the loans it serves two functions it obviously provides the money that they want for their life but the interest is then able to be written off it's a tax write off right mm-hmm. and so what happens is whatever taxable income Um, that they have from their jobs of running Amazon or running Tesla or whatever the case may be um, is offset by the tax deductions from the interest from these loans. And I I also want to say that there are tons of billionaires that we don't even know their names of because they don't work. Sure. They don't do a fucking thing. Sure. And, and that's, that's kind of the die part is um, essentially you know, you're not going to have to pay taxes on unrealized gains. So if you just have all these stocks and then you die and then they're um, inherited, those aren't going to be taxed, but then there's supposed to be the estate tax, which is supposed to, you know, interfere with that. Um, but you're able to sidestep a lot of, you know, that, that tax law through setting up, you know, trusts and other like philanthropic. Oh, that billion dollars that went into the environmental fund. Who's actually paying attention to how that money's being spent? Right, exactly, exactly. Which is why you know many of the billionaires of of that list that you refer to, the six hundred or whatever, are just you know like the um, the children of the Waltons or, or whatever the the mm-hmm. family is that run uh, Walmart, I believe. Sure. Yeah. So I think. You know, you you touched on this briefly, but there was a mechanism for a really long time uh, yeah. to to help um, <clears throat> with the issue of wealth inequality and wealth accumulation, and that was the estate tax. Sure, um, it's a hot button issue, especially amongst the wealthy, specifically because it's designed. If it's an effective practice, it's designed to destroy inherited wealth and essentially force each new generation to be productive members of society. When you don't have an effective estate tax, then familial wealth builds and builds and you essentially have a new nobility class, a leisure class. That's right. And um, over the years, the estate tax has been weakened and weakened to the point where it no longer has teeth. Sure. And here we are, you know, again, I mean, you look at the quality of our public education. You look at the quality of our, our universities. You look at the quality of our healthcare. All of these things are, you know, the wealth of these, the trillions of dollars that these billionaires hold could be ours, you know, could be public, made into public goods. That's right. And made into something that everyone in the United States benefits from. Horseshit, the world, who cares? Right. But instead, it's literally being held by hundreds of people 
in funds or in land or in something that's essentially inaccessible. That's right. No, no one person could truly spend that much money, even on themselves, as selfish as they want it to be. But by hoarding that wealth, it's inaccessible that's to right. the, the people, uh, to the republic, you know, to whatever form of government. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm just going to pull this out here. I think it's highly unpatriotic. Sure. You know, like sure. I know I'm not the most patriotic person, but you know, I spent two years serving my country through AmeriCorps. Like I, I felt very strongly that as much as I disrespect or dis disliked a lot of our nation's choices and disliked a lot of what um we stand for, I still felt that as a citizen of this country that I owed service. That's right. To our our country. And I and I think it's highly unpatriotic to hoard your wealth and not benefit the country in the slightest. Right. While, while simultaneously receiving billions in federal subsidies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, uh, man, I don't, I, I, I know I keep on talking about taxes, but man, (laughs) it would be nice to sometimes get a tax cut thrown my way. But I guess that's really the preserve of the rich or small business owners or large business owners. But man, you know, like a progressive tax system where it starts small and gets bigger over time would be great because then, you know, we'd really be expecting those who are are more well off to actually support uh, society. Well, and and it used to be that way. So obviously, um, you know, the, I guess the 16th amendment when it was ratified is basically made income tax, you know, the modern framework that we have for today. But when was that? uh, 1918. And, um, when 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 that went into effect, um, only fifteen percent of American families paid, or, or uh, yeah, only fifteen percent of American families paid income tax, mm-hmm. and the top one percent of Americans paid eighty percent of the taxes. I you know I would be curious to see because that's um, I'm not to not to like challenge you or anything like mm-hmm. that, but. I I would be curious to see how much um, real dollars, um, you know, proportionate. Mm-hmm. I don't know the the per percent. You know, how much does the one percent like pay capita? total in in our total tax revenue? Because there you could still and this is an argument that's made. Like, oh, the rich pay a lot of the taxes anyways. Mm-hmm. But that's not the point. Again, if you pay ten percent of your income right. and you're a millionaire. Right. It's not that much. Or even ten percent of your wealth. If you're if you're working for Walmart, uh, I mean or or any one of these, you know, a department store or a grocery store, I mean, a lot of a lot of people in um those areas are receiving food stamps. Ten sure. percent of their income is a huge impact sure. on their spending power and their ability to just survive. Um and we have to be really clear about that. Like a a regressive tax is like sales tax where like, you know, mm-hmm. every time you buy a candy bar, you have to uh, toss in five extra cents to, to help pay for, you know, utilities or public goods and anything like that. Um, but a, a progressive tax is where, you know, the wealthier you get, the more taxes you pay in proportion to your income. Well, and yeah, to the proportion, you know, um, 
just some throw out some numbers that I I found while uh, researching this topic. Um, in 2018, the top 25 earners in America, like the the, the top 25 wealthiest individuals mm-hmm. in America, uh, their federal tax that they paid was 1.9 billion dollars, mm-hmm. um, and for all wage earners, it was 143 billion dollars. Oh, man, we paid a lot of money for that. Yeah, yeah, and you know we all know that Donald Trump paid seven hundred dollars, seven hundred and fifty dollars right. in taxes uh, one year, which he's he's one of those billionaires. Right. Um, the fact that, like, if I had a seven hundred and fifty dollar tax bill, <laughs> I'd be okay with that too. <laughs> sure, sure. So yeah. I mean, what what this all really amounts to is like, um, I guess, again, referring back to those twenty five richest Americans. Um, from 2014 to 2018, their true tax rate was 3.4%. Yep. And in fact, there was a year, dude, this blew my mind. Through this process of, you know, tax write-offs and deductions and charitable donations and everything that they do to um, not pay taxes, not pay their fair share, not be a good contributor to, to society the, yeah to the republic mm-hmm. um bezos one year qualified for a four thousand dollar child tax credit i mean good for him he was able to take <laughs> his kid out get her braces maybe something yeah, like that something important something important yeah i i mean uh, it's so disgusting it's uh, this is a choice. Like, I, I think that this is what I, I want to keep on kind of coming back to is that this is a choice that we as a society have made. Right. You know, we can make a choice to to take this back. And by not choosing to do so, we're relegating people to poverty. Yeah. You know, we're relegating our society to this kind of like extended feeling of collapse. Yeah. Um, because we're not creating mechanisms to effectively redistribute wealth yeah um by allowing the accumulation and further and further accumulation of wealth because this is not going to stop it's not like this is going to plateau i mean in in 30 years we'll be talking about trillionaires sure billionaires will you know get all upset because we're lumping them in with those ultra wealthy (laughs) (laughs) trillionaires but you know i mean you keep on referencing the early 20th century and that was uh, the years of the first millionaires. Right. And, um, you know, wealth kind of maintains the same, you know, I mean, and I, I think what, and I hesitate to bring this up, but I don't even know why I hesitate to bring it up. The truly wealthiest people in the United States have always been involved in some of the most unsavory unsavory industries and unsavory practices um you know the you know where the the richest americans were up to uh the 1850s and 1860s no the mississippi river valley where Mm. cotton was king sure those were the uh the true wealth of the united states was in the slave uh, plantations. Uh, the the richest Americans all lived on these huge mega plantations in the South, but that doesn't give the North a um, a pass though, because 
the Northerners in Boston were heavily involved in the slave trade and the transatlantic slave trade. They were the ones procuring the bodies for the Southerners um, to, to pick the cotton. And right. then the cotton was going up to those mills. So, right. you know, even the original wealth, I mean, the, the founding fathers of the United States were all heavily involved in that industry. Um, and then even after slavery, uh, the industrialists, you know, we're talking railroads and coal right. barons and right. steel barons. And, you know, um, they were busy breaking the backs of immigrant labor sure. coming in uh, and, heavily. And funding and and doing, um, you know, uh, political pressure to, you know, get rid of the indigenous people. Yep. Uh, you know, absolutely. And that was the, the expansion of the United States empire. We, we got into the Philippines and into, Mm -hmm. um, Guatemala and Honduras, and that was, uh, United fruit. And so the, the wealthiest Americans then were also very unsavory characters who were, you know, Henry Ford was a Nazi. Sure. Um, you know, he was rooting for Hitler all the way to the end, pretty much. Um, and, and to this day, I mean, I don't think anyone can look at a lot of what we're seeing in, um, the, the labor practices of Amazon and Tesla and other major corporations. I mean, people are, uh, dying, you know, I mean, we're talking about workers who were, not warned about the tornado that was about to yeah. <laughs> tear apart their building. Yeah. Even, <laughs> and, even like the white hat, quote unquote, white hat billionaires like Gates. Sure. Who's, you know, uh, vaccine foundation has been a key player in protecting the intellectual property of vaccine development, which mm-hmm. has been, you know, directly, uh, impaired and, and stifled the attempts by the global South to have the ability to produce those vaccines. And so you have huge swaths of populations that are under, you know, vaccinated because they can't buy the proprietary, you know, vaccines. Yeah. And there's just a through line uh, through all of this. You know, I mean, we, I didn't intend to, to, to start naming names, but since we're, we're naming names. <laughs> Let's name some names. Elon Musk, his family... What? His family grew up in apartheid South Africa and owned mines, emerald right. mines, where essentially slave labor. I mean, if you if you want to hear about some modern day awful shit, you right. know, that South Africa from the 40s to the 90s was just an awful place to be if you were black or brown. And, sure. And, you know, and I would say by extension, if you were anyone near them, because, you know, you're just morally corrupted by that sense of awfulness and you know the united states is very similar and and you know levels of inequality and levels of uh brutal suppression um but not nearly as bad as south africa but that wealth has helped uh quite a few companies get launched under elon musk's name sure and what would you if i were to play devil's advocate right now what would you say in response to the um, argument that, yeah, but they're creating a lot of value in our society. Like, you know, Musk is leading the green tech revolution and getting us away from, a, you know, fossil fuels and, and changing the whole energy sector and therefore, you know, providing a, you know, 
great value to society writ large? Oh, I mean, just on that count, I would ask you, like, are you sure about any of those claims in the first place? <laughs> um, and and if not, we, we should probably start from there. But overall, I think we create value. The, the workers create value. Um, and, and not just the workers, but just people in general. I mean, we talked to Oba right. in episode three, and Oba is creating value because people are worth it yeah you know we we invent things and we have done uh human levels of activity to to create value for our community and ourselves and our families for hundreds of thousands of years since modern humans have existed yeah why why do we need a billionaire someone who owns more wealth than i can imagine why do i need that person to to tell me what we need to do yeah and i think i think that's one of the the myths of billionaires um that needs to be uh challenged and squashed and that is they deserve their wealth because of the value that they produce meaning you know they were the ones who came up with these great ideas and and the the reality is um no they hire a lot of smart people using capital that they either inherited or were given (laughs) and 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 then ultimately all the value of their organizations is created because of the workers. Yeah, and this goes back to the the nation-like behavior. I mean, a country also has lots of citizens or right. lots of residents who have great ideas and lots of interest in, in making society better or uh, innovation or anything like that. And, you know, when you when your wealth is billions of dollars, you can hire, well, to, I think some of what you're talking about with everyone singing the praises of a certain Mr. Musk, you can hire a propaganda department. Sure. You know, like you can have a ministry of, yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) Buy, buy Twitter and now talk about how great you are. I mean, you, you can buy yourself an army. I mean, when I think I still, you know, again, this goes back to the feudalism thing. For the price of, of Twitter, $44 billion, uh, it turns out, Elon Musk could also buy as many soldiers. He could basically fund Russia's war on Ukraine with mm-hmm. that amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could afford, at the usual cost of a U.S. soldier is $156,000 a year. Uh, Elon Musk could hire... Um, 323,529 soldiers for a year to to do his bidding sure. if he wanted to. But sure. obviously we don't see, do we not see billionaires running around with mercenary armies? Maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know. But overall, imagine how many accountants and PR executives mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. really smart people you could hire for that, the price of that instead. That's right. Um, That's and I right. think that to your point, you know, I don't think they're creating anything. If um, those 614 people disappeared from American life tomorrow, I don't think anyone would miss them. That's my secret. Right. And I think that, one, they would just be replaced by more billionaires somewhere else because our system is what's broken. It's not these people. It's right. the system. Right. But two, I, I don't think anyone would miss them. Right. <clears throat> so... Uh, 
Rob, give me some solutions. Well, I like mean, eating eating the rich, eating the rich might be an option, right? Like a little a souffle. I mean, well, yeah, that's a that's a tricky topic uh, because I think it gets, I think it gets pretty radical pretty fast. Yeah. Um, you know, if we want to talk about a more um, incremental solution, um, I know that there's there's been ideas about introducing legislation that would change our tax laws to start taxing unrealized gains. Yeah, um, Elizabeth Warren had that that's 2% right. wealth tax. That's right. Um, and there's quite, a, I mean, I, had, I, 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 I think that's a very incremental solution, but yeah. she, she wasn't wrong. I mean, you could pay for a lot of nice sure. things with 2% sure. wealth tax. Sure. I think, I think what we're seeing, I know we're not like a, uh, current affairs type of, uh, podcast, but I know, um, what we're seeing right now with this kind of labor, uh, revolution, um, sure. is part of the solution because again, um, it's the Amazon driver that has to pee in the bottle mm-hmm. that's really producing the value mm-hmm. of that enterprise yeah and since uh billionaires only seem to talk in profits and and losses if workers can impact their profits and cause losses then the power is shifted sure sure. and that's why you see billionaires who have so much wealth already already will fight tooth and nail against a union effort of even the smallest impact because they know that they are losing power Right. In that process. Right. It's not just about the bottom line. Uh, A lot of uh, corporations will take a loss on that union fight to prevent the union, even if it wouldn't have actually cost them that much to raise those wages. That's right. Um, You know, I want to say, though, that this goes, I mean, I think this episode just kind of blows the lid on all of our beliefs and systems and concerns. Um, But, you know, I want to go back to what we were talking about originally about a responsive and representative government. Sure. Um, I think that it's not anything that radical to expect that my voice and your voice and everyone else's voice, whether I agree with them or not, is uh, is represented in how our system is governed. Um, and I think that the, uh, the voice of the people should be, uh, heard and responded to. And by the people, I mean, everyone, you know, rich and poor, black and white, everyone's voice should be heard equally. You know, we claim to be this beacon of democracy, but, um, it's very frequent that only the rich and powerful are heard. Right. And we're stuck with the scraps. And if we were to create a system that was responsive to the people and representative of the people, I don't think we'd have billionaires. I don't think we'd have these issues. I think that our system is designed to benefit the wealthy and powerful the most. That's right. And you can see it in every, every step of our political process. 
Yeah, and you know, to this point of everyone, you know, having a, a right to a voice in our political process, and when when speech or when money is lawfully recognized as speech, mm-hmm. how can you compare with that many voices? Right. I mean, we're t- you, you started. We started this podcast just uh, talking about the unimaginable volume of what a billion is, right? And so, when when money is recognized as speech, you know that that puts us at just a a numeric disadvantage of having our voices trying to compete with that many voices, the billions of voices in the democratic process. And so to me, when you talk about the the system uh, is designed to produce this type of inequality, I, I think a really uh, key part of that is the role that money plays in influencing our politicians and that you know money is considered speech and how it basically creates legal bribery and that keeps any, you know, that, that thwarts the legislative process and makes the government really unresponsive to the needs of its citizens. Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I, I think you've been obliquely referencing the Supreme court decision citizens United, That's right. which uh, is actually pretty recent. Yes. Um, and so we've seen um, just how drastically that can change the political process, but I would go much further. I mean, I remember watching the 2020 election and it was like at a bar uh, with my wife or my then fiance and Mm -hmm. we were watching the election results and a news anchor was like, well, (laughs) um, it looks like Donald Trump is losing by about 7 million votes, but that doesn't matter. Let's look at the electoral <laughs> college. And I was like, Oh my God, how do you, how do you lose a democratic contest so badly yet still potentially win sure. an election? Sure. Like mind blown, but like literally everyone just accepted that statement. Like, yeah. you know, when when a vote in the Senate or in the House is 50-50 and one vote goes up, well, that side wins. We all agree with that. When when we, you know, want to decide on who goes, to, where we go to dinner, the tiebreaker wins. In our presidential election, you lose by 7 million votes, you might still have won. Like, okay, we designed this. We can change it. Like, we can just make that a different system. We could just be like, hey, like, that sucks. Right. That's ridiculous. You know, right. the entire population of, I mean, Montana is only a million people. Delaware is only a million people. Rhode Island's only a million people. So we're saying that seven million people's voices just were ignored anyways. To me, that's mind-blowing. I don't care what you have to say about states. I don't know what a state is aside from like something that we created of <laughs> a while back. <laughs> I don't, I'm just, I, 7 million people's voices were just like deleted right. by that right. money or no money. And to me, that's 
mind-blowing that we're then like, ah, democracy. It's like, okay, now we're a republic. Well, if you're a republic, great, but what what else? You know, I mean, the Senate right now is split 50-50. Mm-hmm. Okay, but Democrats have 50 senators, and they represent 40 million more people than the 50 Republican senators. That's right. And that's still not enough to get laws passed. That's still not enough because we have all these other arcane rules. But just that alone, oh, I'm sorry, 40 million people would rather have these decisions be made. But right. again, deleted, canceled, you know, to use a hot button term, <laughs> canceled. So on the presidency, 7 million voices, canceled. Senate, canceled. The House, I don't even know. Whatever. Right. But I mean, we just uh, gerrymandering. Oh, sure. no, oh, you know, sure. there's all this. But like they don't even they're not even allowed to do anything anyways. You know, right. they're like the, the dog that yaps in the backyard. Right. And the Senate just kills whatever whatever ideas that come <laughs> out of them. Um, and then, you know, the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. Sure. The 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 random nine people who basically just dictate our lives. At this sure. Point. Sure. Like. When we talk about this, I'm like, oh, it would be nice to have a system that didn't ignore millions of people on uh, a semi-annual basis. Sure. And that doesn't even get into the topic of voter disenfranchisement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. these are just the voters. This is right. like the quarter or 30% of people who get to vote in right. the United States. This does not include everyone else right? that we're talking about. It's, right. It really is mind-boggling, um, and I think that it it takes. I mean, what we're talking about it takes billionaires, and the the incredibly rich and wealthy owning the news organs that people receive their information from mm-hmm. to not talk about this constantly. Like this is literally going to require grassroots yeah. conversations. Yeah, that's right. Because otherwise, no one's going to talk about this in, in the major, major news outlets. Right. Because, like, well, that's not important, is what what news anchors say. That's right. About this stuff. That's right. So, on that, <laughs> on that note, I feel like we should still just have, like, I, I think that there's hope, you know? Like, there's... We've seen it time and time again over human history that, you know, regimes of, of incredible inequality go away. Yeah. You know, that's the, right. there's nothing, there's no reason for us to assume that this is forever. That, right. you know, the year is 3200. We live in Blade Runner world right. now, you know. Right. <laughs> and it is, I would also um, assert that um, in the you know long arc of history, after each revolution, a more equitable society emerges. That seems to be a trend that we're on. I don't know if you agree with that statement, but it, it seems to be the case, at least in, like, uh, I would say more, well, I would say, you know, that's, that, I would say that, that's, that, I would say it's true. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, this is, maybe going a little bit past billionaires but again it's a it, it's a choice that we have billionaires but um you know i just finished reading uh david graber and Wengro. I, I think it was co-authored by a guy named Wengro, um called dawn of everything mm-hmm. and it talks a lot about 
the the very broad scope of human history the, uh, yeah. the hundreds of thousands of years of human history and just how humans have always been politically engaged and have mm-hmm. always been working on trying to create a better system of governance for themselves and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad but like we're active participants in this in this conversation in this dialogue of wealth and power and of um you know morality and ethics Mm. and as humans this is just a very human thing to do and so we're allowed to protest we're allowed to ask for better things we're not we're not we're not human because we create laws and rules we're human because we want to make a better world Mm -hmm. you know we create laws and rules to make the better world and when those laws and rules no longer apply in that sense it's up to us to make them better um and that's what i mean like every time we've torn down a system we seem to be able to create a, a system that is getting us a little bit closer to better objectives. I hope so. I mean, it, I, I, I think that there is definitely an optimism there. And, and, you know, I mean, not to get too far into it, but it's really hard to imagine losing all the gains that we've made, you know, for women, for, um, you know, minorities everywhere, mm-hmm. just the, the overall, um, respect for humanity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's a never ending process. We can't really stop right. doing that because right. the moment we stop and the moment we're just kind of like, Oh, okay, let's chill and enjoy the fruits of our labor. And we'll let, well, you know, I think that there's always going to be someone who will want to take advantage of that. Sure. And what we have right now is people who have taken advantage of these systems for hundreds of years and generational wealth of just immense uh, levels. And, you know, we're seeing the system collapse on itself because of that. I, I, I think that we need to um, band together as a society and, you know, save ourselves and save the world because that's those are the stakes that we're we're in right now sure anyways <laughs> it's been great though yeah it's yeah been good to good to hash it all out man uh any closing thoughts on that i mean if since we're kind of ending it on this you know hopeful note i mean i i guess what i took away from everything you said is if you know you asked what the solution is and if I were to summarize it, the solution is solidarity. Oh yeah, solidarity in this in this struggle, and not and not being complacent. You know, I <coughs> sorry. <coughs> we can just cut that out, yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was at a I was at a protest this past weekend. Um, it was a small one, and with a, a group that I hadn't you know, really interacted with before. And I'm always kind of a, a loner when it comes to going out to these actions. Cause it's, I don't know. I, I think my natural social anxiety comes out, mm-hmm. um, when I'm surrounded by a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of people with really high emotions. Um, but I think the, the big piece here is that there's no enemy to the left. You know, everyone here 
wants to make the world a better place and wants to eliminate um, the extreme wealth inequalities and save save the world, save people, save women. You know, I mean, we're talking about save the planet, saving saving the planet, and this is not some like. Um, you know, pie in the sky thing. It's just like literally, like guys, we have we we can make changes. Like yeah. we can do something different. Like I think we're just in this really big sense of complacency because it's been a, a few hundred years, but like systems have existed for thousands of years and still fallen apart. Sure. Um, the fact that the United States is is big and powerful right now doesn't mean that it's doing the right thing. It just means that it's operating sort of in the same capacity as those mall shop owners from, you know, the beginning of the episode. Right. Um, And I, for one, want my children and, you know, everyone else's children and their children's children to be able to enjoy a world of justice and fairness and equality. Um, And and it's worth fighting for. Right. Yeah. That's That's a beautiful thought, man. Yeah. Solidarity, dude. That's it. Yeah. All right. Signing off. (laughs) Until next time. Until next time. This is uh, United States (laughs) to the Left. Yes. Uh, Please make sure to to leave a fantastic review of this podcast. Sure, sure. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at Uh, People's House for United Left. uh, And that is for with a numeric at Gmail. So. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. If you have anyone uh, you think we should interview, please send us a, a you know slide into our DMs, and we'd be happy to set up a chat. Definitely. Until next time.